You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's January 15th. It's been just over a week since a mob of the president's supporters attacked the U.S. Capitol. Five people died as a result. On Wednesday, the House of Representatives impeached President Trump for incitement of insurrection. According to RAND's Brian Michael Jenkins, a renowned terrorism expert, the attack was a, quote, predictable possibility, and we're lucky that it wasn't a massacre. Congress reconvened shortly after the assault to certify the election results, and so democracy held. But security failed, spectacularly. In the near term, attention is understandably focused on any security threats during President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration next week. But Jenkins says that a longer-term concern is that the U.S. has entered a new era in which political violence may continue well into the future. Quote, I worry less about mobs in Washington than I do about terrorist plots by diehards after the inauguration. Death threats have become common against health officials and political leaders during the coronavirus pandemic. A plot to kidnap Michigan's governor has been revealed and foiled. It is not difficult to imagine death threats, attempted assassinations of political leaders, and other acts of terrorism. The 2020s could turn out to be a turbulent decade. RAND experts recently discussed key questions related to COVID-19 vaccines and the historic campaign to distribute them. Here are some highlights from that conversation. First, it's not surprising that the initial rollout has been so bumpy, says Jeannie Ringel, director of Rand Healthcare's Access and Delivery Program. State public health systems, she says, have already been stretched thin for months due to the pandemic. And there will always be a tension between prioritization and the speed at which we can vaccinate. Quote, if we're going to focus on prioritizing particular groups, then that's going to take a little longer because we have to identify those groups. Ringel also notes that although a first-come, first-served approach might result in more shots administered more quickly, it might not be as effective from a public health perspective. Rand's Courtney Gedangle, a board-certified physician, weighed in on the challenge of addressing vaccine hesitancy among Americans. She highlighted that the size of the patient trials, more than 30,000 participants in each of the Pfizer and Moderna trials, and the long-term follow-up that's done to monitor vaccine safety in the U.S., should instill confidence. Furthermore, extended studies of other vaccines show no evidence of long-term damaging effects. Now, what about people who've had COVID-19 or worry that they've been recently exposed? Should they get the vaccine? The current eligibility guidelines say that those with active COVID-19 symptoms can wait 90 days if vaccine supplies are limited. But it's unknown how long antibodies last from natural infection. That's why, whether you know you had COVID-19 or not, there's no reason not to take the vaccine at some point. It's best just to take it as soon as possible if it's offered, says Gedingle. Finally, how will getting this vaccine change your daily life? Well, in the immediate future, it shouldn't. Our experts cautioned people to continue to be careful after getting vaccinated. 
it's still unknown whether someone who is exposed to the virus after being vaccinated might still be able to transmit it to others. That means it's important to continue to wear face coverings, observe social distancing, avoid crowds, and wash your hands frequently. The U.S. mental health system faces serious challenges. These include high levels of unmet need for mental health services, limited community-based supports, and disparities in access to care and the quality of services. But recent trends, such as expanded insurance coverage for mental health care and bipartisan support for reform, suggest that the country could clear these hurdles. To help identify a path forward, RAND researchers interviewed experts and conducted a comprehensive review of mental health care best practices and innovations. Here's a brief rundown of what they found. The researchers identified three main goals for creating a mental health care system that's centered on patients. First, promote pathways to care. Too often, people with mental health needs don't even make contact with providers. One way to address this is to promote systematic mental health education in schools. This could help destigmatize mental health and improve attitudes, enhance the knowledge and skills needed for prevention, and encourage people to seek help when they need it. Another opportunity to promote pathways to care is to link homeless individuals with mental illness to supportive housing. Stable housing not only improves individuals' quality of life and chances for recovery, it can also save the healthcare system money by reducing the need for recurring care. Second, improve access to care. Once a patient's need for care has been identified, several barriers, including affordability and the location of services, may still prevent them from receiving care. This could be overcome by strengthening the enforcement of existing mental health parity laws and by ensuring that evidence-based mental health treatments are reimbursed by Medicaid at their true cost. Third, establish an evidence-based continuum of care. Once patients are receiving care, it's up to the health system to make sure that it meets patients' needs and that all providers are on the same page. Our researchers recommend launching a national initiative for care coordination. Such a program could provide technical assistance, implementation tools, and learning support that would help mental health care practices transition to using evidence-based models for treatment. The hope is that these goals and recommendations will help decision-makers take actions that support consumers in finding, accessing, and receiving high-quality, appropriate, and timely mental health care. If that happens, it could improve the lives and health of tens of millions of Americans. The use of telemedicine skyrocketed during the early days of the pandemic shutdown. That's according to a new RAND study. Between mid-March and early May 2020, more than 50% of Americans with a behavioral health condition said that they used telemedicine. Among those with a chronic physical condition, more than 40% turned to telehealth. Notably, some groups used telemedicine more than others, For example, use of telemedicine for behavioral health was lower among non-Hispanic white Americans relative to non-Hispanic black Americans. It was also lower among people with less than a high school education relative to those with a college degree. Researchers also discovered that a large majority of people who used telehealth during the pandemic did so to connect with their own doctor rather than a new or unfamiliar one. These findings may have important implications for the future of telehealth, which is expected to remain popular once COVID-19 has passed. 
According to lead author Shira Fisher, quote, if telehealth use is going to remain high, we need to ensure equity of access, particularly for behavioral health care, where education, age, and gender were all associated with levels of use. Did the turbulence and tragedy of 2020 lead to a renewed sense of civic engagement? To find out, Rand conducted a survey that emphasizes the perspectives of Americans who are disproportionately shouldering the social and economic burdens of the pandemic. 50% of survey respondents identified themselves as non-white, and 45% reported an annual household income of less than $50,000. Overall, the results show that many people, despite struggling themselves, are helping their communities. More than 50% report helping their neighbors, and more than 80% report supporting local businesses. 26% donated to or volunteered for local organizations that help the poor, and 11% worked to change a policy or law to help improve their communities. While helping neighbors and donating to local organizations was key across all the racial, ethnic, and income groups, black and Hispanic respondents reported more efforts to change policies or laws than white respondents. Black and Hispanic respondents reported somewhat less activity with local businesses, but the overall rate of support was over 75% across all groups. These findings suggest that strong civic engagement among Americans could support pandemic recovery. You can find a full breakdown of the data on the RAND blog. We'll have more survey results to share later this year, as RAND researchers continue to track civic engagement during 2021. Some critics view foreign aid as charity at the expense of American taxpayers. But RAND's Raphael Cohen says that's not accurate. Providing foreign aid serves U.S. self-interest. It can help keep Americans safer, more prosperous, and secure. Over the last four decades, foreign assistance hovers between about 1% and 2% of the total U.S. budget. And according to Cohen, foreign aid represents a good investment for this relatively modest cost. For example, peace and security investments make up one of the largest sectors of American assistance dollars. This support enables other states to combat terrorism, counter international crime, and stop the spread of weapons of mass destruction. Ultimately, stopping potential crises before they escalate to the point where they require direct American intervention. Foreign aid also opens markets for American goods. For example, 43 of the top 50 destinations for American agricultural products once received American foreign aid. And health assistance provided by the U.S. helps curb the spread of infectious diseases, possibly preventing future pandemics. Cohen notes that foreign aid is not a panacea, and the public skepticism surrounding it is likely to remain. However, as a new administration prepares to take office, surely reopening the debate about foreign assistance, it may be worth reminding people why America provides aid in the first place. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.